Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. We're here at the Boulder Bookstore with a packed house and local author, Buzzy Jackson, who is here to talk about her book, To Die Beautiful. So if you want to know more about the actual plot of the book and all of that, listen to the radio broadcast episode, because right now we're going to take questions from the audience. So uh, first question, how did your own Jewish identity change or evolve? if at all, through the writing of this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, my mom's Jewish and my dad's not Jewish. And, but according to Jewish custom, that means I'm fully Jewish, <laughs> which, I, which I feel very proud about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, one thing that this really, this story really touched in me was it's, my own my own Jewish ancestors went through something very, you know, somewhat similar to this in the early part of the 20th century. They were in what's now Ukraine, what was in Russia, and they were part of that wave of Jewish immigrants who were basically run out of Russia through the anti-Semitic pogroms of that time. And, you know, a lot of those people did not manage to make it to America like my, thank, thankfully, my descendants did. But reading about the experience of Jews in the Netherlands during this time it really gave me a window into what I think probably some of my own family members, <clears throat> including my own grandmother who was born in Russia and didn't come here until uh, her teenage years, the terror that they lived with all of the time. Um, it was really, uh, it's it brings up a question that I think so many um so many Jews in sort of the great European Jewish diaspora <clears throat> in the 20th century have asked themselves, which is, you know, how did they know when it was time to leave? You know, and it's a question anytime you read about the Holocaust or any of these things and in your mind, you're going, get out of there, you know, like leave Berlin, you know, whatever it is. Um, we've all sort of felt that watching movies or reading books about this. And um, and I really saw that in the stories of Philine and Sonia because uh, there's a very natural tendency in their families and in most of the Jewish families, I think, there to rationalize what was happening. It's really not that bad. You know, look, the Nazis are here, but in the, the Netherlands, they did not appear with like a Kristallnacht kind of very violent invasion. The process in the Netherlands was a very slow um, implementation of anti-Semitic policies. And the idea was to not scare the populace into freaking out and either all the Jews leaving or all the Gentiles rising up to help them. Like that was the idea. It was like, if we do this slowly, you know, um, to some degree it worked. Um, but people like even Feline and, Feline and her father, I don't even include this in the book because it would have been 700 pages long, but she and her father actually went to their bank, it was a teacher's credit union. Her, her father was a French teacher. At the beginning of the occupation, like the first month, went to the bank to get all their money out to move to England, which was what a lot of people in the Netherlands, Jews in the Netherlands wanted to do. England's very close. And the bank would not let them withdraw their money. And it was, it was sort of a bank policy not to do it. Um, it, was, it was his money. They couldn't take the money out, and that whole dream of escaping uh, 
went away. And uh, Feline's father died in the Sobibor concentration camp. Um, so even the people who did know it was time to go sometimes couldn't leave. Um, so as a Jew myself, as somebody fortunate enough to be here today in 2023 uh, writing about this, it's um, it just gave me a really deep sense of the randomness of life, of fate, of the contingency of history, and um, how many tiny things have to go right to continue the generations, you know, in a situation like that. How did you approach contextualizing the Dutch experience for an audience that is unlikely to know anything about it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in some ways, I think I was well-placed because I also didn't know anything about it. So, I mean, aside from what we all, the basic things we know about Amsterdam or whatever, um, I, you know, I tried to, I made several research trips over there and fortunately have friends who live there and Dutch people uh, who live there who could kind of guide me to, um, not only guide me to many of the places where these events happened, that was really important. I visited most of these sites where uh, the scenes take place, not all of them, but as many as I could. And they haven't necessarily changed that much. So I tried to focus on, you know, describing what this place looks like, trying to describe, um, you know, one of the things that is true in this book is that almost everything happens on the back of a bicycle because they're riding bicycles, just like you think of people riding bicycles, but um, except the Jews who got their bicycles all confiscated in like the first year of the occupation. <clears throat> so there's things like that. I made some bike trips between Amsterdam and Harlem, that kind of, th <clears throat> that kind of thing. Um, and then I think very crucially, I had uh, a Dutch author and historian who I really respect. I had her read the entire manuscript when it was more or less done. And I just said, please just flag anything in there that looks dumb to you, <laughs> you know, that is just something no one would say in the Netherlands, that kind of thing. And there were definitely things in there that she pointed out that gave me a little more confidence about putting this book out into the world. But I'm happy to say that the Dutch people I know who have read it so far have really loved it and they feel like it's very, you know, accurate to the the feeling of that place. So, I mean, let's hope so. <laughs> That's, I just tried my best. <laughs> well, that ties in actually with a couple of questions people have asked about how, how are the resistance and how is that part of Dutch history commemorated now? Because you do talk about that um, in, you know, the, at the end of the book about it's, it's complexity there, and especially with Hani, yeah. because she was also involved in communism yeah. to a certain degree, you would think she would be on, you know, all the postage stamps, sure, but right. that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, the same thing happened in the Netherlands that happened here after World War II, which was that uh, the USSR, which had been our allies four minutes earlier, were suddenly our enemy. And um, communism kind of went back in the in the category of being something we don't like. You know, now I'm talking about the Netherlands, that they were also involved with the Cold War politics. And so, for instance, in the first years after Hani's death, um, she was really seen as a symbol of the resistance. And uh, she, 10,000 people showed up to her funeral the first year after she died. Thousands of people continued to come every year. And eventually... The Dutch government um, in the 1950s uh, 
prevented those gatherings from happening because they felt her connection to communism was a little too sketchy for them at that time. And the, you know, ironically or not, the um, vast majority of resistance groups and resistance actions in the Netherlands during the war were organized by the communists. Um, they were the ones really doing that work. And that history was just kind of erased for a while. But um, from what I can tell, uh, you know, when the wall came down and Glasnost and all of these things started happening in the early 1990s, um, that's when her reputation starts to become more sort of rise again in the Netherlands. She was basically, her reputation was kind of suppressed during the Cold War, I would say. Now, year by year, I think she's getting a lot more stature. And she has a, she actually appeared on a postage stamp in East Germany. Uh, speaking of Cold War politics, they were like, we're happy to claim Hani shop. So I think she may also be on an upcoming stamp in the Netherlands, too. And there's places named after her now, like schools, and there's monuments to her and stuff. She's she's I my hope is that this book will be a small part of bringing her back into the conversation of, I think, tragically overlooked great heroes of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We've done a number of books which bring to light amazing women throughout history, a number of novels. And it's just so interesting doing these different ones. I remember one we did, I think it was called The Cape Doctor, which was about like the first woman doctor and this amazing life that nobody really right. knows, you know. Yeah. So this question is, what personal lessons did you learn about yourself writing a novel and not a nonfiction? I mean, you said you had three that are in the cloud now. So, <laughs> yeah. this, so writing a novel that gets published might be the question. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, in a way, this was like a perfect project for me because it one of the intimidating things about one of the billion intimidating things about writing a novel is in my mind was always well it could be anything so where do I start and stop and how does the story get contained it's nice to write about something that really happened because you have some parameters to work with and it gives it sort of gives you some um, limits on how far you're going to go, you know, and especially with this novel, I really didn't want to go very far beyond what I knew of the facts, what we knew. Um, but I think it's been, uh, it's been a super fun experience and actually I'm hoping publish another novel next and maybe I'll write nonfiction again. I still really love nonfiction, but it was very freeing to write a novel. Um, once I, once I threw off the shackles of uh, being an academic historian and feeling guilty about it, then I was like, oh, no, this is actually, like, great. You know, people can do cool things and and say cool lines back and forth to each other. It's, it's a little less dry, you know, so that was fun. Well, is there an equivalent person currently who, who would be considered as brave as Hani? I mean, I think of the first person that comes to my mind is Malala, just because... She's a young woman. I mean, she was even, even younger than Hani. You know, imagine imagine having acid thrown in your face for trying to go to school, and you're a young girl. I mean, it's so disgusting and shocking. And we talk so much about, you know, how hard it is to 
be alive right now, how hard it is to be a teenager. It's it's even harder when they're throwing acid in your face, you know? So I I think uh, she really comes to mind. And I, I do think that there's people all over who are doing things that are maybe not as dramatic or violent as what Hani did, but are making huge differences. And I, I see that all the time. I mean, I definitely saw that while I was writing the book with those... Um, with the border issues, you know, and the people who sort of come out of the woodwork to help people they don't know and to put their own lives at risk or to sacrifice a lot in their own lives. So um, I really admire those people. And most of them will never know their names or hear about them, but they're making our, our lives possible. I mean, some of the Black Lives Matter protest oh, yeah. things were like that. And I think it was in Seattle when there was a group of mothers who put themselves between the protesters yes. and the police yeah. when it looked like it was going to get violent. Yeah. That was pretty brave. Very brave. Very, very brave. And, you know, it's, I mean, I have a niece, uh, sort of cousin slash niece, who graduated from law school and basically just moved to Juarez to represent people, families in need who are being incarcerated for no reason. And the sacrifice that she's made of basically her entire 20s uh, to do this for almost no money. And it's it's incredible. It's incredible and incredibly moving to me. So I, yeah, I think we're seeing it a lot. Unfortunately, because there is a lot of rising fascism and authoritarianism in this country and elsewhere, uh, we're going to see a lot of heroes too, I think. So you grew up in a very literary world with lots of famous writers. What, what if any of them did, um, what did they offer you as, as, as you became a writer? Yeah, my dad, John A. Jackson, if you'd like to buy his books, um, is a mystery novelist and uh, grew, and so yeah, I did grow up in a community of writers in Montana and Northern California. I think the main thing that I really took from them was just the model of, you know, they most of them weren't famous, for one thing. A lot of them were poets, and they never get famous. Um, and my dad was never really famous either. Um, but what I saw were entire lives devoted to doing that work of writing. And even though they had jobs on the side, you know, they had day jobs and they had families to support and real, you know, real responsibilities, they did not ever give up on their writing. And to me, I mean, I continue to find that incredibly inspiring. My dad is 84 now, and he's writing uh, incredibly complex, what looks to be a 2,000-page novel, <laughs> you know. Um, he claims it's keeping him alive. Um, but I find that so inspiring because... As every writer knows, um, and I've certainly tried to publish books that have not gotten published, um, you know, you have to do it for your own reasons because it is such a crapshoot whether you, A, you'll ever get published, B, anyone will ever read your book if it gets published, um, you know, all of that, that you have to know why you're doing it for yourself. And I think I saw that modeled for me like so beautifully by a lot of people growing up. So this is a personal question. It's kind of a long shot, but Montana writers, maybe the 80s or so, 
Um, was Richard Hugo in? Oh, yeah. Oh, you knew Richard Hugo. Well, he's a famous poet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Worship Richard Hugo. He's. I, I agree. I love his writing. I love him. And he ran the writing department at, in Missoula, which is where my dad lived, and which is really like the center, one of the centers in Montana of all the writers. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I mean, I think he was somebody who... He was such an inspiration to people there on people like James Welch, the uh, novelist and poet. You know, Jim was just he was a Blackfeet Indian who really liked to write poetry. It never even occurred to him he could do that for real until he met Richard Hugo as an undergraduate at the University of Montana. And Hugo said, you know, I really see something in you. I think you should keep going. And you know, by the time Jim died, he had a he was a chevalier of letters from France and he had National Book Awards and, you know, all this stuff. It requires people like that who keep that creative community alive. And I do want to say I, we're not on the radio, so this isn't just like a, some, you know, plug to sound nice. But I do want to say, Arson, that the Boulder Bookstore really serves that purpose for a lot of writers and creative people in this community. And on behalf of all of them, I want to thank you because I think this is the 50th year anniversary of Boulder Bookstore, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's really important. We'll be having some festivities in September and we hopefully will be involving some of our local favorite writers. Uh-huh. So we'll I would love to stay be tuned for that. Yeah. You know, one last thing about Richard Hugo, you know, he he's come up a little bit lately because um, when Charles Simic died, yeah. who is a poet that some people might know, there's a very famous Richard Hugo poem that it was like a letter to Charles Simic that Hugo wrote. And it was basically Hugo as uh, was in his 20s and he was in the army or the Air Force, whatever it was, and he was bombing where Simic lived. Um, as a boy before Simic is yeah in yeah. Yugoslavia and so it's kind of Hugo apologizing and saying I, I had no idea you were down there and I was actually like the worst pilot there ever was so <laughs> probably didn't hit anything but I never read that one but yeah. I love Simic too and yeah he died recently I feel one of my uh, poetry nerd precious possessions is I wrote a fan letter to Charles Simic and he wrote back he actually wrote back and um, said, Dear Buzzy Johnson, blah, 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 blah. And I just thought, Johnson Jackson, who cares? You know, don't do that. Yeah. You know, poetry nerds unite. Yeah. Okay, well, more writing questions. Yes. Any advice for young teen writers? That's from Della and Kerry, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Della, my old neighbors, Della and Kerry. Um, you know, it's funny. I. I didn't really start writing seriously until I was in my 20s. I think that's because I was in denial that uh, I was scared. And I think I was in denial to say it out loud that I wanted to do it, um, probably because my dad was a writer and, you know, I was around all those people. But I think now there are so many more opportunities, both for writers of any age, but definitely for young writers in terms of blogs on the internet and just think, things you can write that I guess I would just say as somebody who, as I mentioned, has written three practice novels, like start early and often, you know, the more, I mean, I am like living proof that 
you can get better at it, <laughs> you know? And you, when you start out, you won't necessarily be that great at it. Um, and, you know, one of the tricks that I basically used to sort of get past imposter syndrome in my own writing, especially when I was writing those those previous novels, is I just I just decided, look, Buzzy, don't worry about quality. Just go for quantity. Just write like this number of words, you know, every day or every week or whatever you want to do, whatever works for you. And there's no magic number. And do not care if they're good or bad. Just try and hit those numbers. And honestly, that trick really worked for me because it gets you in to just the cre creative flow of doing it and out of the constant self-criticism -critic self of, you know, they can stop you at every sentence if you let it. So That's like in that book, The Artist's Way. Yeah, yeah, morning just pages. Write, yeah, write. exactly. I think it's really, really um, helpful. Just don't worry about it. Um, just get as many words down as possible. All right. So this one's about your research. How how did you do your research, both from here and and whatever, whatever research you might have done abroad? Um, well, as I said, I do fortunately have some friends in Amsterdam, and fortunately, some of them are scholars and uh, people who really know a lot about this subject. And also, just I have some friends who just live there, and that was so helpful because. The scholarly people sort of helped me get the big picture view of the story of the Netherlands during World War II. You know, you kind of start big and funnel funnel down. And then um, once I got a sense of Hani's story and I got a sense of where some of the archives might be, they held some of her, anything related to what she had done, I narrowed that down and I I basically went on a research trip to the to the Netherlands and I set it up in advance. I kind of knew where I wanted to go. Um, I wanted to go to the Dutch National Archives in The Hague. Uh, I wanted to go to the Anne Frank House, um, of course, because I had been there before, but just some of the folks who work there helped me as consultants on this book. And I also went to a place um, in Amsterdam that's called the Institute of Genocide. And uh, fun place. And um, <laughs> it's... Uh, but it is an incredible archive of materials from not only the Second World War, but like lots of other horrible things that, uh, in their case, the Dutch did as colonizers. And um, had a Dutch friend come with me, and basically I gave him a list of keywords and names to look for, and we just started going through pages. And I'd say, "Oh, this looks like it could be interesting. What does this say, Diederik?" And he would read it and go, "Well, this is an interview with somebody who was tortured by the Nazis." And blah blah blah. I go, "Great, let's photocopy it." And so I I ended up just getting a ton of documents that way, and um, coming back using a lot of Google Translate to translate some of them. Um, and I also took a trip to uh, England and went to the uh, the National Archives there because that was the other missing piece of the resistance is that the resistance in, the, in Europe was sort of amassing all this intelligence during the war. But the idea was to get it to the Allies, right, so they could then use it. And uh, that was an incredible trip because I found, um, I found these archives of basically the folks in... Britain, who were receiving not necessarily something that said, like, this is from Hani Shaft, but like Dutch resistance information they were getting, one of which was um, a map 
that had been made of a Brit of a German U-boat facility that was on the coast of the Netherlands. And I am pretty sure this is the place that Hani Schaft went and using her German, fluent German, passed herself off as a Swiss national and basically just walked onto this military uh, base and made a map of it and went, this was files I saw from the RAF, the Royal Air Force, showing here's what we have, here's what we think is there, we think we should send a squadron out, you know, and then aerial bombing photos of bombing that factory, which was in fact bombed. So it's like an incredible, those are the moments as a historian and like a detective that you just think, maybe we found the missing link here between these things. Um, so, I mean, I really enjoy doing the research. So um, I think I made two trips to the Netherlands to do that and then just did a ton of stuff here as much as I could online. And the Nuremberg trials, all of that's available online. I got a lot of stuff from that too. How did the Dutch resistance get that information um, over the sea? I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways, but I think uh, Hani herself was never involved in transmitting any of that stuff. So I know less about that. But um, I think part of it was sort of uh, British spies, essentially, who were in hiding in the Netherlands, trying to pass themselves off as Dutch people, going to little drop-off places, finding, you know, written the maps, essentially. Um, I mean, it was, there were sometimes secret radio broadcasts. There were, you know, all sorts of things. So I can't tell you, like, the very specifics of it, but... It was really dangerous work, and um, every morsel of information they could get, uh, they used, including just information about, oh, it turns out the Dutch people are starving. You know, like, we didn't know that, and now we're getting these reports, that kind of thing. Well, more questions about World War II and your reflection on that. Given the retaliation on other Jews after the resistance killings, we spoke about that in the radio broadcast, how do you personally feel about their choices? Was it worth it or not? I mean, um, I should say that the retaliation was not just against Jews. It was just against, most of the time, just random, randomly picked Dutch citizens who uh, just, you know, were punished for these for other people's crimes. Um, you know, all I can say about that is, uh, thank goodness the Nazis didn't win. <laughs> and whatever it took to make that happen, I think was worth it. So, uh, yeah, I have no judgment of these women and men who did this. I, I think they're heroic. And from all my research, you know, they took this very seriously. It was not just an opportunity to go out and randomly kill people. It was fighting for their lives. And um, when you're put in that position, I don't think there's much of a choice. So I don't feel too conflicted about it. One of the most powerful scenes in the book, I don't want to give too much away, is is when Hani kind of stumbles upon uh, this retribu you know, retribution killing going on. Mm -hmm. And they kind of stay back in the shadows. Yeah. That was really powerful. Yeah, that happened. That was a real event. And, um, you know, witnessing that happening as a result of something you did is a horrible feeling. Hani and the other members of the resistance it was pretty common for them to have to take a break every once in a while and just, you know, take literally a vacation from the resistance, go underground. And Hani and Jan spent uh, almost a month in 1944 just in the countryside, kind of 
trying to trying to recover mentally from what they had experienced before they could go out and do it again. So, you know, I think it was it was a huge struggle for all of them. And some people had to stop doing it after a while because they they couldn't take it. So my last question really is, was there ever a point in writing the novel that you didn't think it was working? And if yes, so, what part and how did you work through it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a constant feeling, no matter if you're writing a novel or any kind of book or probably any creative project. Um, yeah, you know, I this book, uh, my writing group can attest that um, I wrote it, I started out writing the first several chapters in one verb tense and then rewrote it in a different verb tense and then rewrote it from the third person and then rewrote it in the first person. All of those moments, and those are not moments, they're months that we're talking about, but um, that's why it took seven years. Um, you know, you it's such a fine balance between standing back and looking at what you've created and saying, uh, I don't think this is working, trying to figure out if that's even if that's just your bad inner voice trying to get you down or if that's real. Secondly, if it's real, how in the hell do I fix it? You know, that's another question. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, as anybody who's been to my house knows, I have little post-it notes stuck up everywhere to, you know, keep me motivated. <clears throat> and um, one of them that it goes up all the time, it falls off occasionally, I'll put it up again, is um, just keep going. Just keep going. I mean, that sort of comes back to the word going for word count rather than quality too. But honestly, like my feeling is if you quit, if you quit writing the novel, if you quit whatever the project, then you definitely will not succeed. I mean, that's like 100%. It's not going to work. So the only way you can improve your odds is by not quitting. And then just keep going. And, and I think ultimately... Sometimes I find it inspiring to look at books, existing popular books that I don't think are very good, that seem to be popular, and think, oh, if this slob can do it, you know, <laughs> probably I can't, you know. And I obviously not going to name any names, but like, you know, it's there are books that inspire you because the writing is so good, and there's ones that inspire you because the writing is shitty and it still got published. So surround yourself with some of those books too. That's my advice. Well, I do have one last audience question, but it's a perfect closer. But I just want to squeeze in one last one for me. Yeah. Um, you're a historian. And what are your thoughts on, I mean, and you've alluded that to this and you've talked about this, um, about what's currently happening politically, early signs of fascism. We're also seeing this growth in literal book burning and a suppression of what history is being taught. So what are your th thoughts right now on how history is or isn't being taught, given the fact that, I mean, I think most of us felt that we weren't necessarily suppressed in our education, but this, you know, the Dutch experience in uh, World War II was news to so many people. Yeah. And but we're now in a time where there is active suppression yeah. of what is being taught, certainly in U.S. schools. Absolutely. I mean, it is uh, both shocking and completely unsurprising to me to see these insane book bannings and curriculum, you know, re restrictions. Um, and unsurprising because if you look at American history, it's full of that bullshit and it probably will come up again. Um, there's a great quote that I read once that said, uh, there is progress in history, but it's progress in spirals. 
So it's like you kind of get up here and then, oh, no, we're banning books again. You know, and, oh, no, now we're going to do this and now we're going to, you know. Um, I think it's, um, I think it just shows that while so many things I really do feel have gotten better from a social justice standpoint in this country in certain ways in the last, let's say, 100 years, um, the same impulse to um, censor censor books, censor people, get into the minutia of other people's lives and it does not concern them at all. That just seems to be some weird human impulse, uh, maybe American impulse, especially. And I think the answer is just, um, we've seen it before. It was bullshit then, it's bullshit now. We have to stand up against it. We have to take it seriously. I think we have to take uh, rising fascism in this country very seriously uh, and anywhere it happens. Um, and I think um, I, I think it's it's kind of if you've seen it in the past, just know it might come back. But at least you can look to the lessons of the past of how to combat it, and who ends up on the right side of history. It's usually pretty obvious, at least at least to me. Um, but you know, uh, I think it, it gives me learning about history gives me more motivation and sort of hope in combating that type of thing because. We've we've put down McCarthyism before. We've put down you know other ridiculous kind of book bans. I mean, I grew up in the era of Tipper Gore, you know, where like you know rap and heavy metal was causing uh, violence in America. Uh, she was wrong, and that was a ridiculous waste of time and money and effort. But uh, people who want to do stuff like that are still around. Obviously, um, I heard a reference to them the other day as the Clan Karenhood. <laughs> Moms for Liberty. We're trying to ban every fucking book in this country. In Boulder County. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Moms for Liberty are everywhere. So uh, watch out for Moms for Liberty. That's my message. Do you have any more questions? I don't know. Let's, let's hear okay, your closing well, question. One from the audience. What is your next project, Buzzy? What is my next project? Um, well, I, uh, I was so... As I said, writing this book was such a breakthrough for me in terms of finding kind of a way to write a novel that was inspired by history. So I'm writing a new uh, a new novel based on two true historical crimes, um, true crime. It's set in the 1960s. Um, I've already finished a rough draft of it, so I'm excited about that. But um, I basically am pitching it as, to my agent, as um, Nancy Drew meets In Cold Blood. So, In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's uh, great uh, novel slash nonfiction book about a horrible killing in the 1960s. Um, there's definitely violence in this new book, but also some like seriously heroic uh, women. So maybe that's a theme. Let's see. Well, Buzzy Jackson has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club. Uh, podcast that's a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian, and thanks to everyone here live Thank at the bookstore. Thank you so much. Thank you.